Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. What we choose to make a crime is deeply influenced by the sort of racial legacies of the United States and the ways in which we create conditions for crime are deeply racially biased. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is one of those episodes, I tell this every so often, that could have gone another two hours, and I wish we had had that time. But this is an episode on race and policing. I've been wanting to find the right person and the right way to address this debate because it's really, really, really important and being had really badly. By the way, this debate just stretches so far out, right? All the way from there is no race and policing problem. There is no racial bias in policing. The only problem is that the left is turning people against the police and making it harder for them to do their jobs. And it stretches all the way on the other side to the path to safety is police abolition. But I really want to frame it right around that fundamental need. Everyone in it wants to feel safe. There is a universal human yearning for safety. And the fact that so many people don't feel safe around the police, and then the fact that also they are often not safe without the police, it puts them in a terrible position. This is not a debater's point. These are people's lives. And we have to find some way through this thicket. And so I've been looking for the person who might actually know a way through that thicket, um, looking for somebody who has the data and has actually done the rigorous analysis where they can tell you what the data does say and what it cannot tell you or what it does not say and also has that wider perspective to look beyond what you can see in a study to different ways the world could be and different ways the world could be composed, right? We can often only study this world we have, and this world we have is not an experiment we've been able to run time and time and time again. So imagining it being radically different is tough, and doing that without it just being magical fantasizing, doing that without just putting away the idea that things could also turn out worse with radical change, just as they could turn out better, that's tough. People too often use the alternative to slip the bonds of reality, when oftentimes it's a way of thinking about your reality more clearly. So I am thrilled that we were able to get Dr. Philip Atiba Goff on the show. Uh, Dr. Goff is the co-founder and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity. He's a professor of African-American studies and psychology at Yale University. Um, the Center for Policing Equity, they are the world's largest research and action think tank on race and policing. But really importantly, they host the world's largest collection of police behavioral data in the National Science Foundation-funded National Justice Database. So he sits on top uh, the single most important trove of data in this entire conversation, done tons of studies, tons of great work, and is incredibly clear-headed and rigorous and compassionate and thoughtful in how he talks about this and analyzes it. So I wish I'd had so many more hours with Dr. Goff here, but I think this conversation turned out great, um, at least for our first run. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at box.com. Here is Dr. Philip Atiba Goff. Philip Atiba Goff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You had a, a really powerful line I heard you say in a podcast where you said, the way we set up law enforcement is almost the exact way we'd set up an experiment to make you engage in more discriminatory behavior. Can you talk about why that is? Yeah. So, I mean, social psychologists, um, at least for the last um, you know, quarter, maybe half century, we have been making our research smaller and smaller and smaller to make it more and more precise. So we're now down to the part where we're rearranging, my dissertation was literally rearranging office furniture around racism. It's like the feng shui of racism. But what that allows us to do is to get the exact situations that are most likely to get everyday people to engage in discriminatory behavior. Things like, I'm tired. 
So if you're, if you're tired, what you do is your brain gets lazy and you over-rely on over-learned um, sort of associations. So you end up behaving in line with stereotypes. If you're multitasking, if you're cognitively depleted, if your adrenaline is up, if you're in a new situation, if you're being negatively stereotyped because of your membership within a visible group that matters to you, like let's say you're wearing a uniform and that uniform is associated with things like authoritarianism and racism. All of those things are really robust predictors, and, and you can manipulate them in a laboratory. You will get people to discriminate against black folks and not white folks in a laboratory across a whole host of different dimensions. But also, all of those things are literally the job description for law enforcement. So when the laboratory experiment and the job description overlap like that, it is not surprising that we see some pretty significant racial disparities on the other side. It's exactly what we would predict. In fact, most social psychologists would consider that to be cheating. You just added all the things you knew were going to produce bias and you put them all together, except it's not an experiment. It's not for sort of laboratory outcomes. It's with people's lives. And the fact that we haven't done that bit of translation is... I mean, it's just negligent from a science and from a science society perspective. So one of the things that gets at, there are, as you say, hundreds, thousands of experiments in which we show that either in specific ways law enforcement operates, you see bias, or in the kinds of specific things that uh, describe the conditions in which law enforcement meets with Black folks, you would see bias. And yet there is this argument that you see Heather McDonald, um, you know, is, is part of it. Um, Roland Fryer's work comes up in it on whether or not there's racial bias in policing, despite what the headline statistics say. So can you give me your your gloss on that? How do we know if there is racial bias in policing and 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 what can we say about where it does or doesn't show up? All right. So it's really important that we frame this question appropriately. There is nobody. And I mean nobody I've met who is remotely serious, who has the skills to evaluate research, who's looked at actual data, who says there's no racial bias in policing. That's just not a serious position, right? That's like saying there's no oxygen on Earth um, and there's no such thing as the color green. Of course, there's bias in policing. Where there could be a reasonable debate is at what level? right? And at what magnitude, right? That Those are serious questions to which we we have just the beginnings of some answers. But you've put two people in the same sentence that where at least one of them would be really uncomfortable to be there. Roland Fryer, for all of the, the things that I think are irresponsible in the way that he has written up some of his stuff on policing, does not contend that there's no bias in policing. In fact, the, the first article that he put out, the one that got all the unnecessary undue attention, it was really clear there is loads of racial disparities which probably constitute bias in police use of force. For whatever reason, he decided to emphasize that he didn't see it in use of deadly force, but in every other uh, form of use of force, he finds it, right? So got to set the table stakes here. No serious person is claiming there's no racial bias, right? The people who are claiming that are politically motivated. They're not really set up to evaluate the science. They're not interested in evaluating the science. There's not controversy there. So if we're going to go to where there's um, some kind of unanswered question, I got to get at what are the outcomes where we see bias, where we've got good evidence and not good evidence, and what are the levels at which bias might exist? So let me stop there because I can I can go through each of those, but I, it's probably less of an interesting conversation if it's me professoring at you. So no, let me ask I, you, does I, that make sense? I, 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 I actually love being professored at. That's why I became a journalist. So I should just keep having that happen to me forever. So we're, we're going to, I'm going to elicit as much professoring as I can. And I should mention here, um, I brought up Roland Fryer. Roland Fryer is a Harvard economist who did a study on on policing that got a ton of attention a couple of years back. And Heather McDonald is a sort of right-wing journalist on these issues. And, and you're right to say that uh, they they operate at different levels in the conversation. And McDonald sort of uses, I'd say, Friar's work pretty aggressively. I want to get to those levels. You have a really nice framework for thinking about racial bias and police use of force. And you say it operates, the way to think about this is that it operates at three levels. What are those three levels? That's exactly right. So, um, let me I'll do the, let me do outcomes first and then I'll do levels because I think outcomes that's the where the conversation has been and I want to move us to talking about the levels. So when people are talking about use of deadly force, that's a really, really small percentage of an already small percentage of incidents. It's not to say that there's not too many of them at all. but when you have small numbers, it, they work differently statistically, right? So I could look at use of force generally and we see 
like incontrovertible evidence of not just disparities, but of bias. If I look at stops, vehicle stops and, and pedestrian stops, if I look at ticketing and arrests, those are biased even when benchmarked against the most conservative benchmarks of crime. But if I look at some outcomes like spoken contacts, those might not look biased depending on how you analyze them. So we got to be specific. Policing is not just one thing. It's many things. We got to be specific on what is the outcome we're going to look at. That's me kind of being a methodological snob and nerd about it. But the levels are where we really should be talking about. And so thank you for the compliment. This works on three levels. First, an individual officer may or may not be biased, may or may not exhibit bias. So if one officer treats black people they meet one way and white people another way, treats Latinx people and Asian people differently, that's at the level of the encounter. We see that like an audit test. If you, if you send uh, black people and white people out to encounter the police, how do they come back under the same circumstances? And it's definitely the case that we see bias there. But if we restrict our conversations to just biased officers, oh my God, are we doing the, the work of racism for racism? Because we're missing the other two layers. The other, the second layer is probably the most important one, was at the layer and the level of communities. So if I treat everybody I come into contact with exactly the same, let's say I'm a robot officer, I'm RoboCop, right, but maybe less violent. I treat everybody exactly the same, but I am deployed differently to black neighborhoods than white neighborhoods, you're still going to see racial disparities. And in fact, that is a form of bias that afflicts black communities and poor communities tremendously. But it's not going to look like the individual officers are biased. The decision-making and the deployment patterns are biased. And we must be able to hold that to account because policing is fundamentally a neighborhood issue, even more than it's an encounter issue. And when you say deployed differently here, are you saying something like in one community there is stop and frisk and another there isn't? Or what do you mean by deployment there for, for those not too deep in the, in, in the lingo? Right. So I, I'm leaving it a little bit vague because we only have 17 hours to have this conversation, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, so it could mean a number of different things. So one thing is, all right, in these neighborhoods over here, you're going to employ stop, question, and frisk. And these other neighborhoods, you're going to employ only grandmothers get across the street. That's one way. But it also could just be, I want 20 officers per square block, right, per block over in this neighborhood, and one officer per 20 blocks in this other neighborhood. So just the concentration of officers is going to lead to different outcomes. It could also be everywhere across the city, everywhere you see an open-air drug market, I want you arresting folks. Now, I don't know when the last time was that you were on a college campus, but most college drug use happens in dormitories. I know that's a shocker to all the parents right now. Can I tell you a very quick story here? Sure. I went to UC Santa Cruz, which I love, and, and I say this with so much adoration about school, but admit day, so the day when new admittees were allowed to come and, and, and see the campus and decide if they wanted to go there, it was 420. And so I was like this wide-eyed uh, high school kid, and I went, and there were all these people dressed in green, and there were banners hung outside um, windows that said, Happy Holiday. When you say open-air drug market, uh, and this was not, Cal uh, marijuana is legal in California now, but it wasn't then. And nobody was getting arrested, right? It was like a, like everybody could see what was happening. And my sense is not uh, every place gets treated with as much indulgence as um, and that's a public that's a public university. Um, not every place gets treated with as much indulgence as like the kids who got into that school, including me, um, who got to like make a game out of 420 um, where people in other communities do not. That's exactly right. And so there, I mean, UC Santa Cruz is a special kind of open air drug market and has been for generations. Um, but <laughs> on most college campuses, it's a closed air drug market, right? It's, it's you know, uh, Jim's dorm room, right? And, and Sally and, and, and Steve's suite. The point is it's indoors. And even if it weren't, we don't treat colleges in the same kinds of ways that we treat low income black and brown communities. So the same instruction arrest everybody in open-air drug markets, is going to afflict some communities different than others just because of the geographic, just the spatial elements of those communities. That's the community level at which bias can operate. The last one, and I think it's hard to, hard, harder to conceptualize, but the last one is, is also really important. It can happen on the city level. So let's imagine that everyone inside of a city, let's pick just, for example, the greatest city in the history of the world, Philadelphia, so everybody in Philadelphia is getting treated the same at the encounter level. And in fact, every neighborhood in the, the city proper of the greatest city in the history of the world, Philadelphia, is treated exactly the same. But let's say it's treated more harshly than a city like Bridgeport, Connecticut. 
right? Across the board, Philadelphia cops treat folks more harshly than cops in Bridgeport. It's actually not that hard to imagine. Well, because percentage-wise, there's more black people in Philadelphia than there is in Bridgeport, you see racial disparities. And that's also potentially a source of bias, is that we have a different function, literally a different mission for law enforcement in cities that are higher percentage of black and brown than we have in cities that are higher percentage white. We got to be able to understand each of those levels um, and if we're actually going to do anything about them. And we got to be able to understand those levels if we're going to uh, be able to metabolize and understand the research that's out there and separate the wheat from the chaff on it. And, and just to flag post what I'm doing here, I, I want to go through some of the objections because I think clearing them away is, and, or at least contextualizing the ways in which they operate is important for being able to like have people like come along in this conversation. So the thing you hear next in, in, in this discussion is, well, this is all generated by crime rates. Um, police police more aggressively where there's more crime. Um, there's more crime in Black communities. And so everything you see here is simply a function of police going where the crime is. What is the relationship between the crime rate of local community and police violence? So I feel like I, I can't wait for this to come out so I can take it and use it in class because you're literally going through each of the stages of objections to all of these arguments. Let me respond to the question because the, the form of the question matters. Most of the times that I hear that, you won't hear, well, it's just police go where crime goes. That is the more reasoned version of it. What you usually hear is, well, what about black-on-black -black crime? And the ver other version of it that is more popular recently is, but what about Chicago? It's important to distinguish between the two forms of that question, which are good faith and bad faith. The bad faith version of that question is, come on, you know black people just deserve it. I mean, it's, it's almost expressly bigoted, and it should be treated as such. And the bad faith version so proliferates that people should be sort of, it should be understandable why, why folks have such a strong and emotional reaction to the form of the question. Because it's meant to mean, it's meant to indicate black people deserve what's happening to them. But there's another form of it, the good faith version of this, which is, well, cops do go where crime goes, right? And if there is more crime in black communities, which there's statistics that say that, shouldn't we expect that that's a portion of it? That, you have to deal with that seriously. If you don't deal with that seriously, you haven't been a careful methodologist. And to be clear, you're not a good police chief either. Because if I'm going where the crime is and that's driving all of my stats, I don't want to change what I'm doing necessarily. But that's a solvable, that's an empirical question. You can answer that by looking and seeing. And every piece of the best research from Andrew Gelman and Jeff Fagan to the work that we did, to the work the Urban Institute has done, to even the sort of theoretical models of Cody Ross and John Mumlow and Dean Knox, every one of them says crime is a big predictor of police deployment and police contact. So is, by the way, poverty. Not that that makes it okay, but poverty and crime are big predictors. But they're not, in any city we've ever looked, sufficient to explain the racial disparities. So yeah, crime and poverty, they matter, and there's still bias after that. There's still disparities after that, and in fact, there's evidence that there's still bias after that. And that's where the, the importance of the conversation should come, because in some cities, crime and poverty predict about 80% of the disparity. Now, that's not fantastic, but it's not terrible, because in other cities, crime and poverty predict about 20%. And that means there's a real difference in how much police behavior and policy is a driver of inequality in policing and therefore in criminal justice outcomes. That's where the, the educated conversation in the country should be, but we're nowhere near that because we're still talking about, I, I wonder if racism's a thing. We had a black president. Like, they're like completely specious arguments. Like, you can't pass a class making those arguments, and yet we're doing that in public and not in good faith. I, I'm so glad you brought in poverty here. Because I want to talk about, uh, I want to add in what potentially seems to me to be a fourth level, though though it might be for uh, embedded in in one of the ones you offered. All of the methodology here operates like once a crime has occurred, more or less. What happens when you deploy police, or what happens when police are looking for a crime? It, it operates within the context of criminology, and there's this whole question of what creates crime itself, what creates criminogenic conditions, and we know a bunch about this. Poverty creates crime. Um, not having health insurance creates crime. You actually cut crime if you expand Medicaid in different areas. And something that always strikes me in this conversation, and particularly when you get into what I agree are like the kind of grotesque black-on-black -black crime versions of that rebuttal, is that if you step back and you say what is one of the things that has happened in America is that we have 
used policy, redlining and segregation and disinvestment and all kinds of different things, um, you know, job discrimination, to create much more criminogenic conditions in Black communities. And the outcome of that has been more crime. And then we aggressively police the outcome of that, particularly in those communities. The crime itself, to some degree, reflects some of the racism, which I think is something we have trouble even talking about because we see crime as an individual decision, which to some degree at some level it is. But also we know crime is a social and policy outcome of decisions made at a, at a much higher level than that. Um, we have very, very good evidence of that. And so if what you've done is create conditions for crime and then you police those conditions very aggressively instead of trying to unwind the conditions that lead people to that kind of desperation, like that is another way structural racism shows up in this conversation that it can be very hard to track and does not show up in a lot of the studies. That's exactly right. And it's not even conceptualized in a lot of the research literature because to be perfectly blunt, the people who tend to study this stuff from a quantitative perspective don't know and aren't interested in race. So in 2017, the National Academy of Sciences put out a consensus report. These are pretty rare. They're supposed to reflect the consensus in the field. I was a, an author, authoring member of it. And it, the last sections were embarrassing because they basically said, yeah, we don't know nothing about race and policing. We were charged with figuring out what proactive policing does in terms of racial bias. And all we had was qualitative research and historical research and legal precedent. There was almost no noteworthy quantitative research on this. And it's not that qualitative is something to be embarrassed about. It's that most of criminological research is about quant. And yet nobody seems, and we haven't theorized about this since Du Bois. So it's exactly right. What we choose to make a crime is deeply influenced by the, the sort of racial legacies uh, of the United States. And the ways in which we create conditions for crime are deeply racially biased. So even if you're benchmarking against crime, you're benchmarking, if for the, for the stats people on, like you're benchmarking against an endogenous variable. For everybody else, it's like defining the word with the word. You're trying to figure out how much racism is there and you've plugged in racism on the front end. So even that, even the things that we find are pretty aggressively conservative estimates of the level of bias that we see out there. Because exactly for that reason that the racial bias is already baked into what we've defined as and how we're policing various crimes, right? Like the crack versus powder cocaine disparity sort of is the, the quintessential example, but there's literally tens of thousands of, of smaller and bigger examples throughout the codes of different states and different cities. And this is a piece that I hope folks understand a little bit better as the conversation continues across the country. One of the big problems that we had when we first, first started doing this work at the Center for Policing Equity was this, they called it the problem of, uh, of the benchmark or the denominator problem. But really it's if a police department beats up black people four times more often than it beats up white people. That's clearly a problem. But nobody knows from that basic articulation how much of that problem is the fault of police as opposed to it's inequality or, dis or discrimination in housing and healthcare and employment and education. And it's not erasing racism to acknowledge that there are upstream factors that afflict black communities that are also racist. But our articulations, our conversations about policing have been so narrow because our understandings around public safety have been so narrow that we have erased all the upstream factors that end up showing up as outcomes when we're talking about policing. Yeah, so to loop this back, to, to use maybe the Roland Fryer studies as an example, and then I want to get to some of the meta studies that sort of show more of the consensus, I think, of the field on this. But, but that study, what it does is it gets data. Um, it has some different variants of it, but I'm going to use like the original one that comes out. It gets data from some police departments that will cooperate, and then it begins to, it nets out how many contacts people have with police. And then it finds that like once you're in contact with police, despite there being a lot of racially discriminatory things that can happen along that along that chain, at a deadly force incident, he doesn't find a, a racial bias in the place where he has this data. And one of the things that was really striking about that is, and this goes to the first level of bias in which you talk about, is simply contact with police being an incredibly important variable. Everybody is treated equally, but because of the way 
Black communities are policed, or even because of the way Black communities have been constructed, there is 10 times more contact with police than like a kid at UC Santa Cruz ever had, like, you know, wandering around with a green robe on 420. Like, and any police contact has a one in whatever chance of going bad. Like, then you get a lot more instances going bad. But that so often what we're doing is trying to like net out, we're trying to control for the thing we're measuring for. And that then makes it very hard to see the thing itself. Yeah, and I, just a, a sort of friendly amendment to some of this stuff, and it's actually not a dig, dig on uh, Roland per, per se, it's a dig on the data that anybody has uh, available to them. I want to make clear there's no such thing as crime data. Um, so, And also there's no such thing as police contact data. He doesn't have police contact. He has a proxy for contact, which is crimes and arrests, right? There are arrest data, but there's no such thing as crime data. There's reported crime data. And the difference is all the difference. Because if you smoke weed in your dorm room and nobody calls you in, there's no stat on that, right? If you smoke weed outside and somebody reports it, there's a stat on that. So even in the alleged crime data and the reported crime data, there's biases baked in in terms of who's going to call the cops and how it gets recorded in the first place. And that's the best that we've got in many situations. So it's not that, you know, he's misrepresenting that um, per se in the paper. It's that we don't have access to anything better because the neglect of public safety is a massive multi-systems level failure for generations. And that data is not, sta- I, I was stunned by this when I began studying this issue more. That data is not standardized or national. <laughs> nope. The largest collection of police behavioral data um, in the world, so far as we're aware, is our national justice database, which we started in 2012 because a bunch of cops were about to get in a fist fight about the fact that they didn't have the data. And as a result, they couldn't do the things that they wanted to do better. And they didn't trust government. We have been trying for the past eight years to give it away um, to a federal agency and have just not been successful. So I guess it's ours now. But it should be a national embarrassment that we don't bother to look at how the state administers violence in the communities that are predominantly inhabited by the sons and daughters of of formerly enslaved people. That's just disgusting. Yezra Klancho will be back after a short break. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Hear Judd Apatow talk about his experience making iconic films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Watch Hacks actress Hannah Einbinder's stand-up special. Experience films that make you laugh out loud with fan-favorite comedians like Group Therapy, where Neil Patrick Harris, Nicole Byer, Tig Notaro, and more hilariously detail their experiences with mental health. Outstanding, A Comedy Revolution, a film investigating the impact of queer comedians with Lily Tomlin, Rosie O'Donnell, and Bob the Drag Queen, and Sacramento, a lighthearted narrative comedy with Michael Sarah and Kristen Stewart, and much, much more. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. You've testified before Congress on this issue a bunch of times now. Um, and in one of those testimonies, you talk about work done by Jonathan Mamolo and Tori Gordon, where they looked at the 50 most cited studies on racial um, outcomes in policing and racial bias in policing. And found that 46 of them, I think it was, reported some form of bias against um, non-white populations. What would you say is the is it the big takeaway from that data? Like if you were going to start somewhere with it to just say what the sense of the field is, what would it say? So I think that the better number is that only one paper found anything like uh, an anti-white bias without also finding an anti-black bias within the same data set and analysis. And to me, like it's an it's a It just so happens to be a nice parallel to climate change, where 98% of the studies that get out there show evidence of human-made climate change. 98, literally one out of 50 doesn't show it. So 49 out of 50 shows some kind of anti-Black bias. That's pretty clearly consensus. And if anything, like in climate change, you have a false positive on citations for the one that shows something other than that, because since there's so few, they get more citations. That's the place to begin to the degree that we're studying this in anything like a rigorous way with anything like useful data, what we're finding are not just large racial disparities, but some level of, or some evidence to us that's suggestive of bias. That doesn't help me figure out 
well, at which level is it the most prominent? At which level should we be aiming our interventions? Where is it the most problematic? But at the very least, it gives me a sense of the, the order of magnitude and the robustness of the finding. And these are on a host of different outcomes. It's not just on use of force. This world of research has created a and catalyzed by the murders of George Floyd and, 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 and so many others, has catalyzed a movement to reform police on one level, to defund police on another, to abolish police on a, on a third. And the other strain of research here is that police do reduce violent crime, or at least in certain deployments reduce violent crime. And that seems like a pretty robust finding in, in, in different places at different times. How do you balance these? That there's cost to having police presence and that there's benefits to having police presence. Like how, how should, how do you think about the tension between, um, uh, between those two strains of research? So I, I don't feel a tension there, except when, um, because of the way we we tell stories about it, it feels to people like there must be. I'm not tense with you. We're good. Um, but uh, <laughs> I don't like know. I don't, I'm 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 feeling a little wound up over here. Well, that's fair. But I mean, you went to Santa Cruz, and we're talking about Philadelphia. I, I, I don't know how to how to square <laughs> that for you. <laughs> it is the case that if you have folks who represent law, like the law, who are armed and who are empowered to take away your liberty, standing at a street corner where you are planning to do something for which they can take away that liberty, you're less likely to engage in the behavior, right? Like that shouldn't be difficult to understand. And the more evidence led it is, the better folks are going to be at preventing those behaviors from happening before they happen. The problem is, as we said in that 2017 consensus report, we know nothing about the costs of policing from that same literature. So we have measured the benefits, and there are there do seem to be some benefits without considering the costs. So, so I don't know how worth it it is to have X number of officers, given that we don't know what are the costs to public health. Abby Sewell has done some of the best work, and by some of the best, I mean some of the only work to calculate the costs to um, physical and mental health of police uh, encounters. I don't know what the costs are to democracy. I'm thinking about um, uh, Veshla Weaver, um, uh, who has led a team that's looked at people reducing calls to 411, 311, and even reducing um, uh, participation in voting as a result of contact with law enforcement. I don't know what the costs are uh, economically. I'd love to cite somebody here, but ain't nobody done that research. And so as a result, these literatures and these movements aren't in tension. They're not even in conversation because we've been measuring the benefits without even considering the cost. And that's got to be some kind of indictment on the people who have been doing it for as long as, as the fields have been doing it. You were part of a study that found a really, really, I think, notable cost, which was that for young people, contact with the police is itself criminogenic. And I want to quote from the abstract here. Four ways of longitudinal survey data demonstrate that contact with law enforcement predicts increases in Black and Latino adolescents' self-reported criminal behaviors six, 12, and 18 months later. These results are partially mediated by psychological distress. Tell me about that study and what you take away from it. Yeah, and so I wish that we had uh, the ability to do closer causal analysis. So when you see scientists say predict, what we're really looking at is, uh, you know, in this case, it's longitudinal, but we're looking at correlational data, but it's pretty freaking suggestive. Because when I went in there, I mean, this is, we did this with this sample over two years. There was another cohort we did over another two years, found basically the same thing with lower quality data. And it turns out that this is something that is, you know, sort of robust within the literature. So uh, John Lobb and, and Rob Sampson have found similar sorts of things. Simon has found similar sorts of things. But the, the long and short is, I thought going in that the, the kids who were acting bad were likely to get picked up by the cops later on. That basically acting like a bad kid was going to land you in worse trouble. Self-reporting, I'm engaged in these illegal behaviors, was going to set you on a path. And the most interesting thing to me out of this research is that there was no relationship to that when you took the other control variables uh, into consideration. It was only that contact with law enforcement predicted subsequent increases in self-reported criminal behavior. That suggests exactly as the title suggests. Hey, it's possible that that contact with law enforcement is doing the opposite of what you'd want it to do. It's not serving as a cautionary note, right? It's, it's serving as as suggestion that maybe it's making it worse. And at the very least, we should be looking at that. We should have answers to that. And if we're not interested in looking, I think that suggests we just don't care. I don't like that as a field. I don't like that as a scholar. I don't like that as a citizen. I want us to care enough to look and see 
What are the consequences from the folks who are hollering and have been hollering for generations that the way we take care of street-level violence and community safety hurts sometimes more than it helps? Do you have any view on what the mechanisms there could be? Did you guys do any qualitative work or interviews or just in your work on this? Do you have a theory? Yeah. I mean, so when it says it's mediated um, by psychological distress, that's, that's a pretty suggestive framing that the more I am bothered by, excised by the perceptions of I'm being burdened, this is racist, um, this is authoritarian, I'm being bullied, the more that's happening, the more I end up acting out. And this is consistent with sort of labeling theory from Samson and Lobb. Like, like there's other literatures that suggest when you're getting stopped a lot, right, you come to see yourself either as, I guess I am what they treat me as, or I'm, I'm playing by all the rules and they're still going to treat me this way. I might as well get some of the benefits of acting that way. And from the, it's not qualitative. I didn't do ethnography around this, but from the conversations I had with the, the kids in the, in these studies, you know, I remember really clearly asking, you know, prior to a full meeting, Hey, what are you guys interested in doing after you get out of high school? And this one kid was sitting in the back, sort of arms crossed, laughed really loud. So I asked like, well, what are you talking about? He's like, have you looked around this motherfucker? Like I'm in jail now. What the heck do you think I'm going to do when I get out of here? So there is a set of expectations. I, I think it's really important to get these expectations aren't just like, oh, they have bad parents. Oh, they, they made bad choices. Like those are reasonable expectations given the world that they see around them and the way that they get treated and they've seen generations get treated. So if I know that there is not a path where working hard and doing well in school and playing by the rules is going to get me a life that feels fulfilling... Why would I do those things? And that's part of what ends up happening, I think, to a, a lot of these kids that we talk to. Um, you know, kids that I, I dealt with in after-school programs and summer schools and the rest. That's the thing that I hear most consistently attached to these sets of outcomes. Now, it's not, it's not overdetermined. Like, I've had students who felt that way and talked that way and, and lucked into and worked into different systems for themselves. But it's not reasonable that we should expect for superhuman performance from every single one of these kids. And that's what it would take for them to beat the odds of the ways we set up the systems for them. One thing that has broken my heart a bit about the way this conversation has polarized and embittered in the past couple of months is that at the core of so much of it is it's just people want to feel safe. And we have done, I would say, in the media and certainly in politics, a terrible job conveying any information really on like what makes communities safe beyond being rich. So I could ask this question different ways. If Donald Trump actually cared about reducing violence in American cities, what would he be doing? If you were made, if you were put in charge of reducing violence in American cities, what would you be doing? But like everybody wants to be safe. They want to be safe from um, violence from each other and safe from violence from the state. How do we make them safe? What do you think works? You're right. Everybody wants to feel safe. The desire for physical safety is universal. The opportunities for physical safety, those are not. I think that the place to start is you've got to allow communities to define what safety is going to look like for them. And you have to empower them to make decisions about how their safety is going to be affected. So I'm, I'm really compelled in general um, by folks who are, are looking at cities uh, as, as cities and counties as sort of a landscape for sort of majority tyranny. So I'm going to give you a, a concrete example. If, if you're living in, a, in an area where um, you're electing a sheriff, okay, sheriff is going to have, uh, in most cases, some patrol responsibilities. So they're going to act like police, but they've also got detention responsibilities. But in that county, you're going to have, major in most counties, you'll have majority white and minority black or Latinx. But it could be majority Black and Latinx in terms of who they're going to have contact with. That means the communities don't, they're not empowered to determine how law enforcement in their area is going to treat them. And if I've got a majority white county that feels like their greatest safety risk is the Black folks over there, I'm going to get law enforcement that looks like that. The way you solve that problem is you change the role of the majority Black areas in defining what safety means and in having control over it. And to do that, you got to mess with the way that cities and counties are incorporated and, and mess with the ways in which community members have voice in public safety. That's real, real hard. 
The other piece to this that I think is needing deeper conversation, you're hearing it in some activist circles, but even there, it's it's the beginnings of a language. We got to talk about what violence really is and what it looks like. Because even the mainstream sort of political left um, reform spaces are talking about, well, we have to do X, Y, and Z for nonviolent drug possession, nonviolent offenders, not the vast majority of folks who are incarcerated, the vast majority of folks who police have contact with um, to, to arrest are involved in some form of violence. And that's not to say we have to be okay with violence. This whole conversation is in some way about violence. But what is an appropriate response to violence? Because violence is almost always both a policy and a personal failure. Somebody got violent, like that means that we didn't intervene, we didn't provide the, the resources we should have. If you have a kid who gets violent in a classroom, right? The kid has to have some personal responsibility for that, but you better talk to the teacher and the parents if you want that not to continue. It's also the case that violence is not a lifelong thing. If you allow people to live long enough, you age out of violence. And yet we've got people incarcerated forever, even well past the, the point where they're likely to be engaged in, in violent crimes. Those conversations, how do we empower the minority, literally the statistical minority, um, to be in charge of how they are policed? And how do we think about, how do we really engage in how to respond to violence? Those, I think, are two of the most important conversations to be had as we're in the process of at least talking about reimagining public safety. There's such extraordinary complexity here, which is why I'm glad we have another 16 hours to talk on on, on this particular show. <laughs> but but when you when you bring that up, when you bring up that autonomy for communities to begin to define what safety means for them. Something we've seen over the past couple of months is that in a couple of the protest spaces, there'd be something like a uh, like a like a disruptive moment where you'd get like the Chaz autonomous zone um, in, I think it was Portland. And like that wouldn't go well. And then people say, well, see, if you don't have like exactly what Donald Trump wants you to have, then you just like have have lawlessness. And it's actually been something that's been very unnerving to me about the way this conversation has progressed, where people to get safer communities that are um policed in more just ways or not policed even potentially, um, as some people want to imagine it, although I have some questions about that. You really would need to do this from the ground up. Like that's an outcome. What you're able to do, like, is is downstream from what you have to start by doing. And instead, like people want to start at the end. They want to like big bang it right now. So like, how do you do that work? When you say that's really hard, when you imagine a community beginning to redefine how it functions for safety, and and you've talked about getting away from just thinking about crime and towards thinking about justice, like how do you do that such it is done methodically, thoughtfully, in a way we can analyze, in a way we can learn from? Yeah, and I'm, I really am glad to be, it's, it's like a, a balm for the last several months to be having a conversation where there's some curiosity about this as opposed to stridentness. Because anybody who tells you they know how to get from point A to point B is for sure selling something because they absolutely don't. We do have a sense of what the outcome could look like. I've talked about the fact that suburbs in the United States look a lot like what protesters would like urban areas to look like. And it's because they have the darn resources to get it done. They have local, hyper-local control of public safety and they've got the resources to have other crisis intervention. But you can't just transform Chicago or Detroit into Gross Point. Like it, it doesn't happen overnight. So I think it's important for leaders to articulate that there's a vision we're moving towards and not to stall in starting to, to take decisive action. But decisive action should be both, here are some things we can do now, and here's a process for planning, Right. I, you know, people are talking about, you know, we, uh, oppression of black people for 400 years deserves bold action. I'm like, sure it does, but black people deserve a plan too. <laughs> so we should have roadmaps on how we get from here to there, which include, and here's the stuff that we don't know. Here's the stuff that seems promising and we should try. And here are the, the, the metrics we need to set up so that we know that it's doing the things that we want to be doing. Because my great fear from this moment is that we're stuck in Groundhog Day. So in the late 1960s, there was great number of great uprisings around um, police violence, and I mean, literally police murder, public lynchings. And there was call for doing something really different um, with policing. And the re result, I think the biggest result, was Nixon. In 92, you have uprisings in LA after the public, awful beating of Rodney King. 
and the, the acquittal of those officers, right? A disgusting process that nobody feels like was fair and just and right. And two years later, under Democratic um, administration, we got the crime bill. Now, good things came out of the crime bill, and there were good reforms to policing in, in the 1960s as well. There was professionalization or modernization. It wasn't all just one thing. But it's very clear to me we didn't get nearly enough if we got anything um, other than the wonderful reports from the Department of Justice um, after Ferguson. We didn't get enough for the, for the deaths of Michael Brown Jr., um, of Freddie Gray, of Eric Garner. We still don't have a ban on the chokehold. And I'm really concerned that there's going to be one really bad incident in one of these cities trying to do, taking a risk on democracy. And that the response to it is going to be, see, we told you. The only way that these animals can be kept in check is with the zookeepers being armed. And I know that's what it feels like. I mean, I've been black my whole damn life. I know that's what it feels like living in some of these communities. And we usually get worse um, in the long run, not better after these explosions. I don't want to see that. And the difference between a better path forward and history repeating itself, I, I think is no more complicated than we choose it. If we collectively insist for long enough, we will get the things that we're insisting on. And most of the things that are front of mind enjoy widespread support. I'm not talking about massive dissolution of law enforcement, but I am talking about you don't send law enforcement to solve the problem of homelessness. You send housing. You don't send law enforcement to address the problem of substance abuse. You send treatment, right? Like law enforcement's good at dealing with the violence of street crime, and they're not good at dealing with the violence of poverty. So we should have different tools to solve our different problems. But we've defunded all the other tools, so all we've got left is law enforcement. I want to see us commit to a path forward that looks like Let's, let's measure um, what police are actually doing. Great, now we know the usage case. Let's measure the impact economically, mental health, civic participation. Great, now we know that. We don't have to wait to try things on, but at the very least, we're measuring as we go so we can say, this part didn't work. Let's go ahead and throw that out. We don't have to throw out the whole baby and the whole bathwater. I'm really, really worried that we're in that moment, and especially if November takes us further from democracy. I think we're really at a scary point of where law enforcement can be scarier than we've we've been since the days of legalized lynching. That That is a very scary thought and way to frame that. You and your colleagues uh, have released a roadmap for exploring new models of, of funding public safety. Um, and going to your point about uh, folks deserve a plan, can you talk a bit about that roadmap and also about a distinction you make in that roadmap between cutting budgets and cutting footprints? Yeah, so... I'm, I, I shouldn't be. I'm not in charge of, of uh, coming up with slogans um, and coming up with rallying cries. There are people who are better at that, and our job is to make sense of it. But I am concerned. There are people who are really eager to just cut funding to anything that goes to black people, and that includes police. Um, and once the funding is cut, they're not really, they don't show up to the table of figuring out how to reinvest, which is how we lost public mental health and public uh, substance abuse issues and public funding for education. I'm really concerned because if you cut, let's say you just slash a police budget by 50%. You're going to end up cutting into personnel because most police budgets are personnel. And almost every union contract I've ever seen says last hired is first fired, which means the youngest, most diverse, most committed to change, most open to change amongst the, the public safety uh, staff, they're out the door. How, you, how are you going to get better public safety when you fire the best chances you have for reform and culture change? Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't have smaller public safety, but there are ways to go about it so that the best that are there get to stay. And that's not a dig at the folks who've been there for a while either. I'm just saying it should be intentional. So the footprint is the kind of contact. You put it earlier. So uh, Jeff Alperton and Roger Dunham have this great um, research that suggests you're only 1.26, you're only 26% more likely to get beat up by the cops if you're involved in the commission of a violent crime. It's all about contact. So the roadmap starts with where is their contact? What are people calling 911 for? And what are police doing when they're not responding to a 911 call? That is not public information. In fact, that, that, those data are not gathered, aggregated, and made available in almost any city. So you literally, I can't tell you what do police do with their jobs every day. That's step one. Step two is we should be mapping that to crime because it turns out when law enforcement are doing a bunch of enforcement actions where there's no crime, especially no violence, maybe we don't want them there. Maybe we can make decisions to put other people there where law enforcement's not and we get better outcomes. And if not, we can put them back later. But at the very least, we've got an evidence-based way forward and that doesn't take too much time. 
The rest of the roadmap is about identifying places that have been blighted either by crime or by over-policing and saying, we need to have better economic opportunities there. And so in the same way that you have sort of opportunity zones and business improvement districts, you can have a black improvement district. You can target them for uh, additional resources, both in terms of uh, sort of social services and in terms of cash so they can make better decisions with it, that will address the social determinants of, of public safety. Those are some things you can start doing right away, and the roadmap calms everybody the fuck down. It says, all right, let's take the temperature down on this. These are some things we can do to move forward. And then in the meantime, let's get a more aggressive plan for what we do next. But we've already seen it happening in Seattle. We've seen it happening in Berkeley. We saw it happen really uh, notably in Minneapolis. There was an outcry for change. There was a big, bold move that felt like it was going to be um, a new precedent. And then it crumbled. And as the cameras are moving towards you know, the rising COVID deaths and the nonsense of this upcoming election, I don't know that there will be enough sustained public attention right now to make sure that these kinds of pathways are continued. So stupidly, the, like the simplest way I can say it, get a plan together for what you can do right now and put a plan together for what you got to plan and then track both of them. It's basic leadership in municipalities, but we're not seeing a lot of it any place. And even more simple than that, I hope everybody listening to this and everybody who cares about this will just not look away. Just don't look away from what's happening. It's not a distraction. It's part of all of this. We know that racism is a driver of COVID. We also know racism is a driver of our partisan politics. It's coming out in policing in, the, in one of the most deadly ways. These things are all connected. Don't look away, because otherwise it's going to be just a worse bill come due the next time we do this. If you could make one investment, big investment, right, like big bill to reduce crime that was not in the spaces of investments we think of as law enforcement, where would you do it? What would you spend on? And I shouldn't say reduce crime, increase safety. Increase safety. I understood what you meant. Um, and you framed that in a way that, I believe it or not, I've not quite heard previously. So I guess it would be in a complete reimagining of crisis response by municipalities. When I call 911, first of all, every time I call 911, that's a policy failure, right? We got to get that there's collective responsibility there. Yes, it's the fault of whoever is doing some violence, but every time I call 911, if it's for something violent, there's a policy failure there. But I need to have better options when I do. So I shouldn't have to call as often, and I need to have better options. So the one investment I think I would make is to, for community-centered and community-run centers to have crisis response to problems that have been policy failures. That's substance, it's housing, it's mental health. If we had substance, housing, and mental health covered in this country as a, a prevention as opposed to cure, that is the best thing we could be doing to defund law enforcement, to right-size, to, to be efficient with our spending, um, and to stop penalizing people for making the best choice they thought possible inside of the limited options they got from a broken system. I think that is actually a really, really useful, actionable way to think about that. And so then let me ask you the question, well, as you said, in the show, although I hope we'll be able to do a part two on this someday. Um, what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? So the three books I would recommend to the audience that I'm reading right now and rereading right now, maybe not expected from a social scientist, <laughs> Wounded in the House of a Friend by Sonia Sanchez, all day, every day. I'll go ahead and go to Evicted um, by Matt Desmond to talk about housing, and I'll talk about Uneasy Peace by Pat Sharkey. But if I gave you, if I just gave you the three books, it's, it's all poetry. Because I think that we segregate these sort of nuts and bolts, sort of policy things that are connected to stats from the soul. I think it's instructive to be reading people like Du Bois, who had to, after his big social science debut in 1899 with the Philadelphia Negro, and nobody read it because it was too good. He had to, to start every chapter of The Souls of Black Folk with a sorrow song, with literally music. Because these things have to be knit together. What's some poetry you're reading? I've, I've been trying to read more poetry, so I'm, I'm looking for suggestions. Um, no matter the wreckage, Sarah Kay. I go back to Sarah Kay over and over again, and then Counting Descent by Clint Smith. Philip Petipa Goff, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Dr. Goff for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here, to Roja Karma for research, to Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. 